Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. My name is Justin Bullock, and once again, I'm here with a, a few Bush School students who spent a large portion of their semester working on a research project that they're going to share with you today. And uh, I think they picked a very interesting and understudied topic that we can work through, so I'm pretty excited about that. But before we <clears throat> get started, I'd like to group members, you'll hear from several other voices, so I want to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. So team, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Katie Ott. I'm Dohan Kim. I'm Brittany Winters. I'm Samantha Ruelas. I'm Xander Perry. Excellent. So let me begin by saying um, thanks again for your work on this project. enjoyed uh, reading it, and uh, um, I think you picked, as I said earlier, uh, something that's really important and something that we don't pay enough attention to, and that is uh, tribal crime rates. So give me just kind of a broad overview of this problem, <clears throat> I don't imagine that the listeners the listeners may not know a whole lot about this. So, what when you say tribal crime rates, kind of lay that out for me. Uh, pretty much, what happens is that there are crimes that are committed on tribal reservations, and on the part of the U.S. government, there's usually uh, like a federal program or two in place to help uh, deal with those issues. But uh, as of late, they've been pretty. Um, unwilling or uh, unable to provide steady funding for these programs. And also, um, there's a general tone of apathy towards the issue. And uh, Katie is actually part Choctaw, so she brought this uh, issue up to us. And uh, we noticed that there were, while, while it is a large issue, there's not a lot of data collected on it. Mm -hmm. uh, which posed some problems for us while we were doing the research. But uh, regardless, it's important to realize that the issue extends beyond just the tribes. It's actually a federal, state, and uh, <laughs> I guess local and the tribal reservations that culminates into like larger, more exacerbated problems. So were people in the group uh, aware of this, or did, uh, was, did Katie have the opportunity to kind of uh, make you aware of this issue, or was it something that was on everyone's radar? How did you kind of come to pick this project? Yeah, so obviously Katie talked about it, but I actually am fairly familiar with uh, Reservation just because back in high school, my church uh, would go twice a year, and I would always go with them uh, to reservations, actually North Dakota, uh, the Sioux Indian Reservation from there. Uh, I just learned to like, love the people there, but at the same time, also know it's just like how many issues they're facing, uh, just everything there. In a way, it seems to be worse. Uh, suicide rates are a lot higher. Crime rates are a lot higher. And so I think it's something that just very much needs to be addressed. But I think it's also very difficult just due to cultural differences, a lot of other factors uh, as how to actually like bring this into the spotlight. And Katie, is this something that um, – have you spent time on reservations? Is this something that you have seen firsthand? Uh, so I did not grow, on a grow up on a reservation. Uh, I do have family who have, uh, and also I do receive like healthcare from the reservation. So I do get up there at least twice a year, and it's definitely very different when you, like uh, I drive up to Oklahoma and I drive straight into the reservation, and it's basically like a food desert, and housing isn't as great, and it's very flat as well as. Usually one of the nicer buildings is the casino and the hospitals. But other than that, it's you can tell 
just by looking at them sometimes that they're very they're different or not as well off as perhaps like um, cities are. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that seems to be my understanding as well. I don't have any firsthand experience um, as we talked about in class. The only the only kind of views I really had before you all started talking about this was from Hollywood, um, and <clears throat> at least in at least in the movie um, that I saw, which I, what the name was I think Wind River, although I can't yes. yeah Wind River. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how accurate it is, but it, it painted a pretty similar picture of <laughs> it being very different in terms of the access to resources, the overall kind of uh, just look and feel of them um, is very different than outside of them. So what's what has led to this? What's kind of the history of tribal crime, and how have we gotten to where we are today? Yeah, so the history really kind of highlights kind of the broad overview of what the trends are in history is this kind of like jurisdiction, jurisdictional maze, as they call it, and we see a lot of like Supreme Court cases and just federal statutes that's kind of all been jumbled together to make a really mismatched jurisdiction. So usually jurisdiction is, you know, like geographically arranged, but in, in this instance it's not. It has more so to do with the type of crime committed or who committed the crime, like racially speaking. Um, so the history really highlights that. So just to, you know, be really brief about it. So before any sort of like European colonization, obviously um, tribal crime was handled, you know, internally with each tribe's sort of prospective laws, things like that. And then after colonization, obviously there was, I'm not going to go into, you know, that long contentious history, but um, obviously a lot of conflict. And so um, there was a lot of things imposed upon uh, tribes. So kind of the first ones was like the, not even the first one, um, kind of going later on into history in 1885, first one was like major crime act. So this is one of the first laws, I should say, that really attempted to westernize. Um, before so, obviously, that was happening a lot, but this is a major one because it kind of dignified that any sort of major crimes would go to federal government. So that was one of the really big laws that I saw. Another one, the Indian Civil Rights Act, one of the most controversial items in that law was um, there was sort of like these punishment limits that were imposed on crimes. So they could only, um, they only have the authority, I should say, to punish um, up to one year per count and a 5,000 monetary fine. So if they wanted anything more so than that, they would have to direct their case towards federal government. And then also another Supreme Court case that's pretty important is um, Oliphant versus Sakamish. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. I'm guessing it's Sakamish Indian tribe in 1978. Um, but basically, this one said that any crime committed by a non-Indian against um, an Indian person, even like misdemeanors, would have to be prosecuted by the federal government. And um, there's actually a lot of non-Native persons living within Indian country or reservation. So this is a really big deal, and it's going to come up later because of um, a lot of violence against women. Um, so that's also a really important case. Um, and then, so those are kind of the older cases. And as you can tell, like you probably, it's already confusing about like who handles who in what situation, things of that nature. But um, in 2010 and 2013, there was kind of a shift and basically just a lot of advocacy and um, people kind of legitimizing the research of the 
crime rates, people publishing it, things of that nature kind of brought this government action in 2010 with the Tribal Law and Order Act. And this act specifically addressed the issue of limited sentencing that really like stripped away tribes' authority and um, really upped their dependence on the federal government. So now um, it is an improvement. Um, and again, tribes are still not totally free to sentence how they please. But um, tribes can now sentence up to um, three years in prison with a fine of up to $15,000. And again, if they want more, they have to direct it to the federal government. Um, what's important, too, about this document is it included language that exclusively stated that tribes had the ability to employ any sort of tribally-based restorative mechanisms, um, which was had not been included in any sort of language and laws before. So it's kind of recognizing that they, I mean, trying maybe to give them a little bit more freedom in their like tribal custom law if they choose to do that and then the last law i'm going to talk about is the 2013 reauthorization of the violence against women act so again this law specifically um, was made for the high tribal crime rates towards women so sexual assault rape domestic violence dating violence um, this was perpetrated um, not only, you know, I should say, not necessarily higher, but perpetrated by persons who are non-native. So as you, if you recall earlier, tribes couldn't do anything about this before um, because they were non-native according to other statutes. They couldn't um, do any sort of punishment and um, local courts, you know, local systems couldn't do anything either because they were occurring on Indian country, on reservations. So they were, um, you know, women especially women, I should say, but other people were, were suffering from this and um, they were just kind of in this pigeonhole. So finally, this kind of addressed that and they said um, it was a really big, really big thing that happened, but basically tribes are able to kind of do this, um, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's they could basically prosecute people who had committed either domestic violence or dating violence who are non-native. Um, but the person who perpetrated it, even it gets even a little complicated here, but even the person who perpetrated it has to have significant ties to the tribe. But it was seen like as a really huge victory in the community. It doesn't, however, address any sort of like stranger sexual assault or um, child abuse or elder abuse. But again, small thing, really big victory overall. So it sounds like <clears throat> that early on, of course, there's the, the storied history of forced uh, migration out of people's homelands early in American history. And then there's these these court cases and acts earlier that dramatically limit the ability of self-governance, particularly for prosecution of crimes, right? And then we're slowly seeing a trend here recently to at least restore some ability for the tribes to uh, prosecute folks who are... Um, who are engaging in, in pretty horrible acts of rape and assault and murder in ways that they couldn't before. So it's moving in that direction, but still some serious limits on their ability to prosecute people who perpetrate serious crimes on their lands. And is that kind of the broad overview? No, absolutely. And I should just add to that, with every sort of thing that they're gaining, even in 2010 and 2013, there are kind of more provisions or procedures that they have to go through based on that that is more based on our like westernized American justice system within their courts. So I should just kind of add that as well. So as part of it's been the way in which they actually 
go about having trials or go about deciding someone's guilt or something has to incorporate more of uh, Western or American views of how judicial systems should work. Okay, cool. All right, thanks for that history. Um, who, who all is at play in this? So we mentioned it's multi-jurisdictional. There's this odd stuff about non-tribal folks being prosecuted or not. And so um, there's a lot of different types of people at uh, and different types of organizations kind of at play here. So who did the group, who all did the group or what organizations did the group identify as the major stakeholders that have a role in this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so overall, probably the biggest and the most important is just people who are actually living on the reservation, both the Native Americans uh, and not uh, simple fact is whenever you look at the statistics and also, uh, again, a lot of these statistics are pretty old, but they still uh, paint a pretty bleak picture overall. Uh, violent crimes are 2.5 times higher than the national average. Uh, women are 10 times more likely to be murdered uh, and four times more likely to be sexually assaulted. Uh, you look at it based on breakdown by racial group, uh, Native Americans uh, have one of the higher, actually the highest, uh, <laughs> as far as arrest goes for different things like burglary, uh, sexual assaults, uh, murder. And so obviously the people living on these reservations have to deal with this. Uh, and that just kind of creates a very just condition having to face these conditions every yeah. day and it and just kind of creates a cycle where you are born into this uh, and they don't really have a lot of choice as far as uh, where they live based on some of the laws uh, so on top of that uh, other groups are within the uh, reservations of the tribal police uh, a lot of times they're just very underfunded, uh, and they also a lot of times don't really have the same resources and just training in general uh, that police would have uh, in other states and other uh, localities. And so uh, that's one of the biggest uh, two. But then also the United States federal government obviously has a huge part to play in almost every single part, every uh, different kind of breakdown of the government. It seems like every department has at least some uh, subsector that like works with reservations uh, however the biggest is the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, they primarily are the touch point for the US government uh, to interact a lot of what they do is economic development uh, that's where a lot of the research comes from that we found uh, in general it seems like they're the ones who are primarily in charge uh, of kind of you know negotiating and working with uh, tribes uh, on top of that uh, the FBI uh, is a primary uh, federal agency that works uh, as far as crimes are related with Indian reservations. Uh, <laughs> generally, they're called in any time that there is a major crimes case uh, that normally involves murder, uh, burglary, sexual assaults. Uh, and so they have jurisdiction over about 200 of the, uh, excuse me, uh, Indian reservations. And so... Uh, they'll normally come in uh, and they have specific subsects, uh, specific special agents are assigned only to Indian reservations. Mm -hmm. On top of that, probably the other biggest player as far as the federal government goes is the Department of Agriculture. They have actually quite a few uh, different offices and other uh, groups that actually work with 
uh, Indian reservations. Uh, the first is the Office of Tribal Relations. Uh, they're kind of spearhead the USDA's, I guess, just entire relationship. A lot of what they do is, again, uh, just government-to-government relations, making sure uh, that they're working together. A lot of that also goes to, like, <coughs> settlements and different uh, – just kind of navigating just a super complex – uh, just legal system that's established on reservations. On top of that, there's also the Office of Rural Development, and they're primarily uh, economic development. And one of their big things, which is really interesting, is trying to teach uh, Native Americans uh, basically like how to use the land, how to become farmers, or a big thing is like becoming bison ranchers recently, uh, and trying to create economic development through empowering members of the uh, tribes to kind of engage in agriculture. Uh, additionally, like states in which reservations are located are also a big player, uh, just in the sense that uh, they have these reservations within their borders that, um, again, it's just super complex as far as the legal system goes, but uh, there's just high crime rates. And actually, uh, the thing that I noticed recently as far as research goes is a lot of reservations are actually inviting uh, local law enforcement or state troopers uh, to help them uh, fight some of these conditions they're living under. I was reading a story. Uh, it was actually, I think, two years ago, there was a triple homicide uh, on a Oklahoma Indian reservation. They actually invited um, state troopers to come in and help them train and also just to deal with this. And it was very much a kind of flashpoint for the uh, community there just because there's some who don't think that any uh, outside law enforcement should be coming in. There are some who welcome them uh, with open arms. Uh, and then finally, I think just the U.S. as a whole, uh, every citizen uh, should really care about this issue, issue one, just because there are fellow Americans who are going through this. On top of that, uh, quite a bit of our taxes are going towards helping them um, just, you know, like maintain their current way of life and also going towards uh, just some policing, FBI, uh, Department of Agriculture, everything I just talked about. Yeah, so you have a a myriad of stakeholders here. Um, and I think I wanted to hit on one of the things you mentioned that shows up in your report that you highlighted, but the degree to which I think is, uh, is pretty shocking, at least to me, um, is the, the just prevalence of the crime in the Indian tribe. So you, uh, in your report, you have, as you mentioned, the data is, is a little, uh, is a little older. Um, but that, um, compared to, other groups of folks, American Indians, have a much higher rate of, vict of violent victimization, but it's actually double the nearest group, right? So it's 124 in your table there, and the closest group being uh, black Americans uh, at 61. Um, and so this is really, uh, even the nearest uh, group of people is half of the violent victimization yeah. of, of the American Indian community. So this is pretty... Uh, uh, the prevalence of it is um, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> jarring, I think. Um, so why, uh, you know, we, we have this multi-jurisdictional thing going on, which seems to play a role in this. Um, we have, you know, historical discrimination that probably plays a role in this for sure. Um, and cultural uh, conflicts, I would guess as well. But what all do you highlight in your report as to um, why this is a problem that persists? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the kind of that jurisdictional maze is plays a huge factor into this, as well as just kind of 
and we don't mean to put it lightly, but federal apathy towards the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the reason that we kind of highlight that there is this federal apathy is there's this lack of incentive for federal prosecutors to really give all of their effort to become involved. Um, so that plays a huge key component in what's happening. Yeah, apathy is a, is a very polite way of putting it, I think. Um. Yeah, um, and again, we don't want to say that lightly, but um, that's kind of mm-hmm. what's happening. So just kind of in general, some of the reasons that this is occurring is obviously most of these um, prosecutors or investigators, people dealing with it, are not, they don't have a large stake in, in what actually happens. They're not living on the reservations. They're not part of the community. They don't have that component to it. Um, most of them are physically just farther away outside of the situation as well. And then um, just kind of politically speaking as well, they don't have a lot of stake. They don't have um, that that incentive politically to, again, like put forth that effort that maybe they would with a more like traditional American, however you want to, you know, kind of classify that as. And um, going back to that jurisdictional maze, just how how it really, again, puts the dependence on federal government, and federal government just cannot handle that. So even if they had the care, maybe they don't have the resources and time to handle all of the cases that actually go towards them because of um, things like, for so an example that was given was um, this case. So a charge such as assault with a dangerous weapon, if this had been committed by um, a Native person like within the reservation, uh, the tribal authority has two options. So they either have to try it there, that person gets can get a maximum sentence of three years. Um, so usually if this would happen off of a reservation, that maximum sentence is, I believe, 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big mm-hmm. difference there, right? So if the tribe wants to um, kind of direct that to the federal federal government. So um, one thing that we talk about that I haven't mentioned is the high declination declination rate. So basically, prosecutors are declining to prosecute the majority of the cases that are sent to them. So that's either because of reservations, um, because of, sorry, lack of resources or lack of incentive, whatever the case may be, they're declining these cases. So in this instance, if they send it to the federal government and they decline, they have no, you know, other choice but to try that person there and maybe they get three years, maybe not, you know, just kind of depending. And again, that that's a big three years, 10 years, very big difference. And afterwards that person would be able to kind of, you know, roam free to the community. And um, this kind of sets a precedent that, um, you know, if the federal government doesn't care and I can only do so much time here, um, you know, unfortunately that says a president that there's not much that could be done. Mm-hmm. And this ups the danger, you know, uh, for people living within those communities. So that's obviously really unfortunate and really contributes to the high crime rate there. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. Let me see. One of the things that, uh, that you do mention in the report that mm-hmm. you kind of have talked to, talked to a little bit about some, but I thought was interesting is that even, um, even when prosecutors or federal agents may want to spend more time um, uh, on Indian country crimes, 
they're often strongly discouraged within their organizations or even punished right. for spending too much time in there. And so, no, that's the exact thing I was going to mention. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, go ahead. There's like this kind of internal, um, not like punishment system that happens for uh, prosecutors who spend time on those cases. So they are like extremely discouraged within their organization. It's not something that, that's explicit or said out loud, but they're very much discouraged from spending time on these cases that, again, the federal government just, you know, they think they're not important. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So it sounds like, you know, this is a part of apathy of federal government, which uh, has a couple of causes that you've mentioned and lack of federal resources. You know, another piece of this, too, which uh, we know is related with crime is just a lack of resources within the community. And so the the Indian tribes often don't have a lot of wealth and affluence. Um, and so there's not a lot of resources there to, de- to dedicate to it. Which also means, you know, that there's not a lot of, there's not like a strong, vibrant labor market either in these communities. And so this also um, contributes to, you know, the prevalence of crime, I think, as well. So what can be done about this? Uh, It seems fairly bleak with regards to federal involvement. um, And there's not a lot of community resources to dedicate towards this. So... What are our choices? What can we do to improve this? Yeah, so we kind of picked recommendations um, or made recommendations that we felt um, we got already that U.S. government's already in place that perhaps can use some improving, but also that we feel that could actually be accomplished. Mm-hmm. So the first one that I'll talk about is going back to um, some of the laws that Sam mentioned earlier, um, the Tribal Law and Order Act that was enacted in 2010 by um, President Barack Obama. Uh, One of the main things that it did is they wanted to standardize the collection of criminal justice data. So in order to do that, they would allow um, access to federally recognized tribes um, to the National Criminal Information Center and CIC and other national databases. So those are the databases that, like, um, FBI and state police often use, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't have access to that before, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, what would be required under that was that the Attorney General's office, the U.S. Attorney General, that is, um, would have to collect, analyze, um, and submit reports um, annually to um, Congress as well as um, the President. But the things we saw as a problem here is that this is voluntary and there's only a few tribes out of the about 570 that are federally recognized that have actually gotten involved. So there's two possible ways I think that this could be improved. One of which um, could either you incentivize having them collect data and put it into the national databases. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be to um, outsource data Mm -hmm. collection. So to start with outsourcing data collection to a third party, um, we thought this was a good idea because, again, like Sam mentioned, it's just like this long history of contention between tribes as well as with the federal government in this very overlapping and almost like a tangled web of jurisdiction. Um, Since there was actually a survey done by, um, it was like Harvard, and it was published by NPR, And it was done in 2017. And 32% of Native Americans reported that they are unfairly treated by 
courts as well as um, law enforcement, but this number tends to rise. So it went from 32% to 50% for Native Americans who live in majority Native areas, like reservations, which kind of surprised me because I was like, well, if you're living on these reservations, why would you feel like you're being discriminated against? Um, however, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, who collects all the data for NCIC, they already outsource data collection to nonprofits, and then they use the American Statistical Association to analyze those numbers. Mm -hmm. However, that hasn't been used on uh, reservations. So we thought it was a good idea to have this um, potential like mediator or intermediary to connect the two so it didn't feel like, once again, um, forced on them, mm -hmm. and they weren't really getting anything out of it. But also, um, another practical solution is to incentivize data collection. Mm -hmm. So this has kind of been tried before, um, but it's very confined. So one example, and this is a long name, but it's called the National Criminal History Improvement Program, Act Record Improvement Program. Goodness. And, yeah. <laughs> it has two annotations for it. But it allowed for tribes to and this was in the early 2000s, it allowed for tribes to apply for additional government funding if they compiled records um, on individuals that were barred from purchasing and were owning guns under federal and state law. So if they did this, prove they did it, apply for funding, go through all the bureaucratic processes of getting funding, they get funding. However, that funding could only go towards collecting that data. So one idea was if a program like this was created that offered grants not only to apply for the program itself, plus perhaps an area where tribes maybe think that their particular reservation where funding is failing, um, like education or infrastructure or healthcare, then maybe tribal leaders and law enforcement <coughs> would have higher motivation to volunteer to collect this data, which could improve some of people like ours research into mm -hmm reducing these crime rates. Mm -hmm. And then again, um, going over funding, um, which is something we talk about a lot, is just funding, funding, funding. And that's mainly because Indian reservations rely far more heavily on U.S. government funding than your average like city or um, state does. Mm -hmm. So one example I gave um, in the paper is Montana. So if you look at the graphs I provided, um, in state and local government, they usually only rely on a fourth of their funds coming from federal funding, and then the rest are like taxes and law enforcement charges and things like that from the court. However, um, in Indian reservations, they rely up to 60-70%. And so there's this very uneven balance there because they have these standards and they want them to lower crime rates and um, contribute to all these programs, but then they're decreasing funding. So there's this inverse relationship of, well, this government has standards on us and they want us to get all this done, but there's no backing, yeah. uh, like put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked about perhaps one way of beating this is collaboration of funding through all of the um, U.S. agencies that, in, that go on to Indian reservations with these different programs. Some of the big ones, which Zane had already mentioned, um, we have Bureau of Indian Affairs, we have Department of the Interior, which um, BIA falls under, we have Health and Human Services, we have 
uh, housing, urban development, uh, urban education, agriculture is a big one. But one way that is an example of this is housing. So if BIA, HUD, and Health and Human Services got together, created a program, HUD could be the one who uses their expertise of land and getting the land <coughs> and housing and then um, health and human services could use their jurisdiction to get different resources and pull it all together. There's a way of beating this lack of funding mm-hmm. and kind of getting around it. However, we could see that as a difficulty just because the bureaucratic process and getting these um, programs to overlap enough that they could use funding in the same way. Yeah, it seems like a, a big piece of this just remains the fractured and fragmented nature of trying to address these things, right? They're across multiple jurisdictions. And then even within the same jurisdiction, like the federal government, <clears throat> there are all these different agencies that, that contribute some amount of funding, but it's not doesn't seem like it's particularly well coordinated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, actually recently, uh, in the fiscal year um, 2017, um, only 21 um, million was dedicated towards programs within the government to serving Indian country, and they're looking to decrease that um, under the Trump administration with a bunch of his rollbacks and everything like that. Um, however, the Trump administration also has um, an equally um, focus on reducing crime, which he's talked about in inner cities, but there hasn't been so much talk about um, tribes, which is kind of like what we're trying to do is advocate and bring light to this issue. So there's uh, concerns with the current administration actually not just improving funding towards these things, but cutting what's already available. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So what, um, what if we could improve funding, what, uh, what are some of the ways in which we could spend it? So if we could come up with more funding, I think, you know, law enforcement is probably, uh, a choice to maybe different types of grant programs that you mentioned. So, you know, <clears throat> maybe it's not possible in the current political atmosphere, but if there was more funding available, what, uh, what are some ways that it could be used? Well, yeah, definitely. There's um, a lot of options. Like there's a lot of those, as we mentioned, the systemic factors like drug issues, alcoholism, poverty in general, you know, that are definitely like long-term problems that need to be dealt with. But as far as like shorter term things that could really use some help is definitely better funding for law enforcement. So there's over 200 police departments serving tribal communities, but the size range of these departments is really drastic. Some of them will only have two or three officers for one, for an entire community and others might have over 200. So, um, you mentioned on average, there are 1.3 officers per 1,000 citizens on reservations compared to 2.9 officers in U.S. communities of comparable size. So, um, just like actually having people or officers out in the field to patrol, to deal with crime issues that are going on, just like the general police presence is very low. And then... Um, kind of going in addition to that, we mentioned uh, with the systemic factors, there's been in recent like decade or so a rise in uh, drug issues, like drug-related crime, especially methamphetamine. So dealing with that is really difficult if you have a very small department. Even in um, like larger communities, larger cities around the country, they usually have an entire task force dedicated to um, something of that nature. But you know, on an Indian reservation that only has two officers, you know, maybe 
like between the two of them, you know, in shifts, they can't even have a constant patrol of the area of any of the areas. And then also just um, working with the um, really harsh conditions sometimes of the actual like natural environment. And, um, you know, if the infrastructure is not very good, having like patrol cars go around can be really difficult. You know, if you're out in the mountains or somewhere in a desert desert type area, it's really difficult to handle that much um, land space with just two or three people. Um, so the whole uh, grant programs that have been put in place, um, most of them occurred in the early 2000s. So like the Tribal Grant Resource Program, a hiring renewal grant program to have increased funding or additional funding to keep officers on the payroll basically um some other initiatives and pilot programs but they're still fairly small there's not a whole lot of resources being put into there and a couple of them that dealt particularly with law enforcement officers have not been funded recently like one of them the hiring renewal grant program which is supposed to help you keep police officers on the payroll hasn't been funded since 2005 and then the tribal mental health and community safety initiative which um, helps with the jurisdictions there and trying to implement more community policing and help with uh, other resources in general for training equipment hasn't been funded since 2002 so even some of the programs that have been put in place just aren't being kept up with and continued. Seems like it would be uh, hard for them to be useful if they're not funded. Exactly, yeah. Uh, So definitely we were interested in looking at originally training programs because we heard there was a lot of issues with um, like processing evidence, dealing with certain types of crimes. So we're uh, thinking originally at the beginning of the project, maybe like having increased training programs. But after doing some research, there's actually a lot of resources dedicated to training tribal law enforcement that are available, especially through the um, federal law enforcement training centers. With the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there's a specific U.S. Indian Police Academy that um, operates with two of the um, FLETC training centers, um, as well as some other programs by the National Native American Law Enforcement Association that has like a national collaborative training event. But some of the issues, as we mentioned earlier, with these smaller departments is if you only have two police officers, you can't have both of them take time off to go train, <laughs> yes. uh, and you don't have a police department anymore. Yeah. Uh, and then also most of these are not actually held on reservations. They're held in these like certain hubs or maybe they're done online. So if you don't have good um, internet infrastructure, if you don't have um, technological resources, or if you can't afford to send your officers across like two or three states to get to these training centers, there's no way they're going to be impacted by any of this training. So just trying to have them get access to all of the resources that are available is really difficult, especially for the smaller departments. Yeah, it seems like a lot of this really is, you know, centered around lack of just resources um, dedicated to safety and enforcement within the communities. Excellent. Okay, so what, uh, as we kind of zoom back and think of the big picture, um <clears throat> What, uh, what were some of your general conclusions for your project? Yeah, uh, so I think definitely, obviously, this is an extremely uh, difficult issue. I think that goes without saying. Uh, I think one of the first things to address uh, is just the fact that a lot of what we're seeing on the Indian reservations is very similar uh, to what we've seen uh, in inner cities. 
Uh, probably the main difference though between those two is that one of them gets a lot of attention, uh, especially like if you look at like politicians, whenever they're talking about crime, they're normally talking a lot about inner cities, uh, just constantly. It's always being brought up, but you never hear that about Indian reservations. Uh, and so going through uh, some work there, seeing what didn't work. On top of that, I think funding is probably just one of the biggest issues. Uh, I also think hopefully as we've seen, this kind of is seems to be getting better. This isn't a totally bleak picture. Uh, I remember when I was uh, visiting the reservation back in, I believe it was 2010, uh, Barack Obama actually came to visit. Uh, he was one of the first uh, current presidents who is currently in office to visit a reservation in quite a long time, actually. Uh, he was there specifically to talk uh, to a group that he described as one that had kind of been left behind. Uh, I think it also makes sense, and this is, in a way, another completely different topic, but uh, I don't think it should be surprising at all that like what we're seeing right now currently exists, uh, especially when you have a minority group that was basically <laughs> targeted. Uh, they were killed, uh, just basically left and right for really no reason at all, besides the fact that uh, they were on land that was valuable to settlers. They were constantly moved west and then uh, eventually relocated. And for quite a long time, they weren't even given anything. They were just given the land. Uh, and a lot of these uh, were more hunter-gatherers originally. They had to shift to an agrarian society uh, just to feed themselves, especially, I mean, if you look at the map, uh, the report, a lot of these areas are just, you know, not valuable land at all. A lot of it's in the middle of the deserts, in the middle of the tundra. Uh, and so it's really no surprise at all that uh, the current existence uh, conditions exist, uh, and I think that's something that's uncomfortable to talk about, but I think it's something that needs to be addressed. It's the fact that uh, the founders of this country are kind of responsible for this current kind of epidemic that we're facing. Uh, yeah, and time, sorry, just kind of to go off of that, um, something that has been kind of preliminary, but um, especially like those laws of the, the Reauthorization Act and the 2010 law that we talked about as well, um, just kind of trying to increase the autonomy within the justice system in the tribes has something that, again, like preliminary research has shown to be, to be a real big improvement there. Um, so kind of just trying to, um, instead of like westernizing their system, kind of giving them back that, you know, autonomy and empowering them to make their own decisions is actually something that could be really helpful and I think is sort of happening in the laws. Um, just kind of continuing that trend, I think, would be really, you know, really great for the tribes. Yeah, this is uh, <clears throat> recently I was talking with another group who was covering um, American territories abroad. So territories that the U.S. has that aren't states, um, but that have significant amounts of people. And this is... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, strikingly similar, I think, in the way that these groups are treated as second-class humans that are uh, that are part of America, and so we have another example of groups who don't look like the ruling parties, who don't look like the people in power, being treated as if they didn't matter in the same kind of way. And so, I'm really glad that the um, that the group brought attention to this. One of the things that I noticed too, you know, Zane, you mentioned that it looks a lot like um, inner city crime in the way, uh, and it's in the prevalence of the crime, but 
It also strikes me this looks a lot like rural poverty as well in communities that don't have access to a lot of resources. And <laughs> in those communities, you have you really don't have the policing resources that you need, and you have higher prevalence of crime because these communities are uh, without the resources and wealth that they need. Um, so I really, um, I really appreciate the work you've done here. I think this is one that um, is really important and one that is a just a serious human rights issue that doesn't even make it into kind of mainstream conversations. And I think it's another example of kind of a stain on the American identity for not really taking these things seriously, given the the amount of violent victimization in these communities. So I appreciate the work you've done here, and um, thank you so much for chatting with me on this and uh, uh, letting me share this with the general public, and hopefully it helps raise awareness of these issues. Thank you so much. Thank you.